to Hacked Off. Uh, thank you for joining us another episode of our Humble Podcast. I'm joined here today by Ed Whittingham from, now tell me the name Ed, I've already forgotten. It's The full name is the Business Fraud Prevention Partnership, but we go by BFPP. Okay, and we're going to be talking about what Ed does, we're going to be talking about the importance of that to staff training in cybersecurity. so it should be an interesting half an hour. So thanks for joining us, Ed. Um, let's kick us off with the obligatory little bit that you have to do. Tell us about yourself and tell us about your work. Thank you very much for having me down. Well, uh, my name is Eddie Whittingham, as you just mentioned. Um, I am the MD of the Business Fraud Prevention Partnership. My background, slightly different, more unusual, I think. I was in the police for nine years. A variety of roles there, then qualified as a solicitor, worked and specialised in fraud and corporate crime, and then a couple of years ago set up the BFPP. Uh, and in, in short, really, Paul, we help businesses, organisations, charities get to grips with that employee threat effectively. So the, the risk posed by employees, maybe through undertraining or a lack of support. So we provide online security awareness training, simulated phishing services, and a policy management tool. All right, well, that's, that's really interesting. Tell me, um on previous podcasts, we've done some sort of technical stuff, and we've delved you know, relatively deeply into technical issues. But as you just said, security is not just a technical problem. It's very much a staff problem and an awareness problem. So what are the kind of obstacles that you've come across in trying to roll out the idea of awareness, security awareness in organisations? Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think traditionally, there has always been a reliance upon those technical solutions, um, and more so, particularly given the recent sort of events that we're seeing almost on a daily basis, there has been more of an attention turned towards security awareness for employees. I think it's fair to say that's probably probably been something that's been quite neglected uh, over the years. So really, we're now seeing a, an increase in companies looking to actually get to grips with their employees. And I think the biggest challenge really is changing mindsets. So I think the biggest issue we've seen is maybe the board are not particularly as uh, on top of it as they could be, uh, and maybe that they don't necessarily see the, as much reliance upon the employee aspect as I have traditionally looked at the IT, and that that has been a sticking point for a lot of organisations, and there's still a long way to go with that. Okay, so the first question that springs to my mind is, you said, you know, we need to get, I always say you need to get board level buy-in for these things. It can't just seem to be, you know, yet another programme that is pushed on top of your everyday employee. How do, you, how do you achieve that board-level buy-in? I think, first and foremost, is really getting them to actually understand it. And I know, for example, some of the things that Sakama do can help really cement that. But it's about making them really appreciate the dangers that are out there. So, you know, for example, getting the board, perhaps maybe even unaware to start with, getting them to participate in some sort of fishing simulation. Uh, inevitably, they perform quite Badly, it's fair to say. Um, so that is often a really good wake-up call. And then, you know, if, if you go a bit further than just that basic level fishing testing, if there's any red team or anything taking place, it really brings home how important it can be. And then I think if they realise that they're a target, they start to really appreciate that their employees are likely to be as well. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that a lot of organisations only react to rather than be proactive against. Um, and that that's an ongoing thing, I think, in, in cybersecurity generally, let alone just employee awareness. Yes, the idea of you know us as an industry trying to move people towards being proactive rather than reactive, that's all very well and good, but I always find security is 
all too often, even now, the last thing in the priority or the thing that gets put on at the end rather than being embedded further down any kind of process. Yeah, I agree. And I, I do think that's changing, but it's changing very slowly in, in my experience. Uh, I think it, it will continue to get better, but it's it's one of those unfortunate aspects of a business that it's it's a risk aspect. And much like how we all don't like paying money for insurance, it's it's almost the insurance side of that, isn't it? I always say that it's not a tech issue, it's a business continuity I issue. I completely agree. And that's the biggest risk, isn't it? If If, if it were to happen, how that impacts the business and what's the reputational impact, what's the business continuity impact, how are you going to function the next day when these things happen, that's that's the key really. Okay, so we've got a bit of time. Let's get into this issue rather than just sure. you know going over the high level stuff. Let's I think let's let's really take it apart, have a look at it and then build it back up and then talk about the solutions to it. So let's go with the, the really simple bog standard question, what is fishing? And I just mean, what is fishing in general? And then we'll get on to the more specific and interesting types of fishing afterwards. Yeah, sure. So obviously there are a lot of variations, but in its purest form, it's a way that fraudsters will try and trick, uh, ideally, the end user into doing something that they ordinarily wouldn't do. So that's typically via a phishing email. So an email that looks like something that it isn't, getting the user to take some action. Okay, but it's not just a case of receiving emails, is it? There is no. some kind of action required. So nine times out of ten, it's click a link or open a document. Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that effectively has a bit of a call to action to it. So it might be something that gets the user um, to want to reset a password on an account. It might be that they need to forward through a particular invoice. Or generally, it's just something that's taking action. It's often meant to be urgent, or it'll be something that you're worried if you don't act, something else bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's just design, it's a, it's a form of social engineering effectively. What's on fear? Yeah, absolutely. Fear, traditionally greed, with the, the older type scams we used to see that we don't really see anymore, unfortunately, because they were brilliant, some of them, quite frankly. There's a guy in Scotland who lives in Brotty Ferry, which is up north, and he decided for an entire year to answer all of the emails that he got from Nigerian princes and people promising him X amount of money and just see how long he could string them on for. And he's now a millionaire. He is. Yeah. It's yeah. absolutely brilliant. Yeah. So it turns out one of these was real. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Yes, you do feel sorry for the prince that is legitimate, don't you? Yeah, exactly. What hope has he got? So that's, that's general fishing. And I think all of us, just as normal human beings, we see these things every day. I don't have an account with HSBC, yet I am told that if I do not click on this link, I will be locked out of my HSBC account. So I disregard that because I know that it's a scam. Um, but presumably, these things exist because they work. And they only need a small percentage of people to, let's use the, uh, the banking one, to click on the link, put in their banking details, and they've been successful. Yeah, absolutely. So they're the, they're the widespread ones out there. They're the proper sort of spam equivalent, really, where it's just, let's throw the net out as wide as we can. You know, maybe 10% of our target audience might be HSBC customers. 1% of them might be daft enough to click through or they might have had training to then sort of realize the dangers with that um, and and they're the ones they're going for so it's just throw the net out as wide as they can and see what see what they get really before we get into the, the more targeted business side of things we're still talking about individuals here here's a question that occurred to me the other day i don't really see in my gmail account i don't see many phishing emails landing on my inbox because I think, you know, the Hotmails and the, the Gmails of the world have done a tremendously good job of siloing 
all of the phishing into the spam folder where you where you never ever look. Do you think because of that people are not aware of the sheer volume of attacks that's getting thrown at them every day? I think that's probably fair and and it almost increases the problem in some respects because then when they do get an email in they instinctively trust it because spam takes care of the rest. It's that sort of attitude that well if it's got through here then it's probably trustworthy and that is when as we'll talk about a bit later when it's the more focused and targeted ones it, it it's even more successful unfortunately. Okay, so there's something for you to do after you're listening, folks. Go and check that spam folder that you've never checked, and just out of interest, see how many phishing emails you can find. Then send us an email and tell me the count. I dare say if uh, we could have our phones on now to interrupt the recording, we could go on our own and have a look, and there'd be everything ranging from bank accounts through to weird dating websites, through to you name it. And I didn't sign up for those. Sexy Russian ladies that have fallen in love with me. You know, it's quite disturbing the number of them out there. Okay, so let's let's take it away from the individual and let's move it into the business zone. So this is where it tends to get, you know, businesses are still sent, even my work account is sent the occasional ridiculous phishing email. But um, phishing emails and businesses tend to be a little bit more targeted, don't they? Yeah, so we see... Again, there's, there's, a, there's a big range in, in how targeted these are. It could be anything still in the sort of spam-wide net kind of I'll category. Stick to that just now and yeah. let's get more and more. So that'll be where it might be. We've seen an increase since GDPR, ironically, of the fraudsters. They're, they're clued up on GDPR, so they're sending out a pretend Office 365 saying you've received an encrypted email because we're all sending more encrypted emails all of a sudden. Um, so they will spam that out effectively to the masses in the hope that we as users and end user employees in organizations might think somebody has sent us an encrypted message and we need to log into this portal to download it, um, which which is a flaw of the encrypted system in some respects, but it's a way of making you think it's more legitimate as well. So that's like an example of how the sort of the wide net approach would apply in the workplace, really. And then after the wide net approach, it gets uh, you know more and more and more targeted and more focused. So we're going to talk in a minute about spear phishing, which is when it's very, very directed. Uh, but I always think there's a little bit between spear phishing, which I take to be very focused on virtually on individuals. Um, and before that, we get these kind of, they're still phishing, but they're kind of scams, aren't they, where it's open this invoice or pay us this amount of money. And the number of commercial businesses that we talk to that say, look, we really suffer from this problem because we are getting a thousand invoices a day. How are we meant to figure out which is a legitimate one or the, the illegitimate, the one illegitimate one? And how do we know if we open that PDF, then we don't let something bad in? Yeah, and that, and that is one of the big problems. And again, it's, it's an awareness thing. Um, there's, no, there's no secret sort of IT solution, really, that's going to prevent that 100%. It's about the staff behind the screen having that awareness to be able to know what to look out for. And it, it's really just creating that good user behavior. So we've, we've sort of already categorized it as sort of the personal life and the work life, but the, the same skill set applies throughout both. So, you know, for example, one of the things we always really focus on is how we get people to 
I suppose, adopt that best security practice at home because then that comes into the workplace. Um, I think we've all seen these Barclays adverts. I mean, I'm quite impressed with what Barclays have done. They've got these digital eagles. They've done some very good phishing or, you know, vishing over the phone kind of examples for people. And clearly they are not just doing it for their customers, for the individuals in their day-to-day lives. As you say, there is obviously an awareness that has a knock-on effect in business when people are going to work. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think a credit to sort of Barclays and the other organisations that are doing their bit to raise awareness. I mean, slightly off topic, but I I think we have a big issue, probably just not in the UK, but it's just not part of curriculum effectively. So we have an issue whereby we're expecting the end users to to adopt this you know, secure behaviour, but they've had no training in that previously. It requires a level of sophistication and we're just not culturally at it yet. I think think you're dead right. Um, Certainly, I've not looked at the stay safe online stuff, but I know a lot of schools get a lot of stay safe online. And nine times out of ten, that tends to be child protection more than than anything else. Um, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, that's absolutely what we need. But um, it took 15 years to get to stay safe online. Do we have another ten years to wait before in the ICT curriculum or the guidance curriculum or something, there is some kind of awareness of the other threats that are out there. I think we do. I think, again, it is going to take time, unfortunately, but we do need something like that because we're, you know, we are expecting, uh, business owners are expecting their staff to not click on these things, but they've had no help with that. And I know that's obviously ultimately where sort of the services that we would provide can help with, but we're missing a trick even before then, Um, you know, and I think that's probably... a whole other can of worms for another day. To say you're going off topic would imply that we have a topic in the first place, <laughs> so you're completely forgiven there. Um, right, let's get into the spear phishing, because this is when, with my hacker hat on, I, I find it gets very interesting. So do you want to have a go at what spear phishing is, and then sure, I mean, maybe come in with some examples? Yeah, definitely. So spear phishing really is those very targeted phishing emails. So this is where they will they will effectively craft a phishing email targeted at you specifically. Um, and again, there's different levels of how specific they might uh, might do so. So it could be on a very simple level, uh, identifying where you work and sending you an email as if coming from the MD or the CEO and just doing something maybe fairly standard in terms of spear phishing. But then it can go to the excess where it's actually researching you know, who works in what department, who interacts with each other on a frequent basis, do they interact with each other on LinkedIn and even on any sort of open social media sites. And it, there's there's endless information out there to, to create these spear phishing scenarios from effectively. And, you know, social media is just one of those avenues really, isn't it? But it's, um, yeah, those very targeted attacks which are meant to, or the intention is that it will really make you take action because it's so believable. And there's probably at least one person sitting listening to this going, well, how do they how do they create an email that looks like it comes from another person? Surely there's something fundamental in email that stops that happening. Well, I hate to tell you, but no. Unfortunately not. So pretty much spoofing any email address. It's very hard to spoof an email address legitimately from the thing.com. Yeah. But for just it landing there and looking that it's John Smith, managing director at thing.com, that is that's two seconds work for that to happen. So it can happen. Good technological solutions might stop that. But as you say, we can't afford to rely on technology. We can't put 100% trust in it. 
we still need that human element at the other end. So, yeah, I mean, we've, we've done quite a few sort of spear fishing jobs in, in our time. Um, certainly one of them, I can, I can tell you about two of them. One of them was, um, was recently with a large organisation and uh, we figured out who the IT director was and who the head of compliance was. And uh, then we sent an email saying, please fill in this GDPR audit from them. So we abused the trust of GDPR. And, and to their credit, only a few people opened it. But that really wasn't the point. We, you know, we only needed one person to open it, and then we were in at that point. So and that's it. Yeah, you, you've hit the nail on the head. Unfortunately, the success rate need only be very low. It need only be that one person, mustn't it? And the other, the other time, this is before I worked for Sakarma and uh, another, actually it was private consultancy, and I was working with an organisation and we'd, we'd looked at their exterior perimeter, we'd looked at their internal stuff, and they'd committed to buy a chunk of days. And I said, well, look, we, you know, we are done now. Um, do you want your days back or is there anything else that you, you want? And we had a chat with them and the, the IT director said, do you know, it would be really good if we could show the board how vulnerable they are do you want to go and take these other three days? Go away and find me everything you can about our board. And this is what you were talking about. And rather than going on social media, I have a programme called Multigle, and I can allow it to plug into LinkedIn, to Facebook, to the general internet. There's about 200 plugins for it. And you literally start with one email address or one name. And for there, it's incredible to watch. From there, it grows in a graph and it will tell me all the forums that that person's been on, it will tell me who that person talks to on a regular basis on social media, and it does it in a lovely graph form, so it's a bigger circle, they're a bigger connection. And from that point, I managed to write a 12-page, basically a dossier, you know, here is the name of the director, here is where they live, which I got off the electoral register, here is a Google view of their house, so on, so on. Here are their hobbies. Here's what they're interested in. Um, all this kind of stuff. And when I handed it over, I said to one of the directors, I can't help but notice that um, your next door neighbour's got a bigger conservatory than you have. <laughs> what does your wife think about that one? And, and I knew his wife didn't like it because I'd seen her moaning about it on Brilliant. Facebook. Yeah. And the look on his face was just... I mean, it went the right way. It could have gone the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. but, um, and, and then I said to him, I said, you know... Um, your, your dad, I found this errant email address, and um, I said, has your dad got an account there? I said, yeah, he's got, we gave him an account because he's old and he, he wants to work email. And I said, well, look at this. And it turns out his dad hardly ever used the email address, so it was easier to find out where he'd left it on the internet by virtue of him not putting it in very much. But it's turned out his dad was a very keen Rotarian. And he'd put this email address in the, I don't know, the Berkshire Rotary Club um, website, which looked like it was made in 1992. It was, <laughs> yeah. it was very retro. And I said, if I sent your dad an email from the Rotary Society, how likely is it that he's going to click on it? And he said, 100%. I said, well, you do realise by giving him that email address, that's just let people into your system. We hadn't thought about that. So eventually we aliased it and gave him a Gmail address so it, it wouldn't touch the system at all. But, um, yeah, that, this is what people don't realise. I still think we're dealing with this problem of, well, nobody would ever hack me. I'm not that interesting or that important. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the examples you've just given there, I think, show how easy it is to do it. Um, and, you know, while these tools are used by the good guys, the, there are 
probably a thousand more tools that the bad guys have access to 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 use to to do those things and, and again they're so cheap and readily available that's quite frightening yeah there's a thing called an exploit kit which um well, they're sold around the world, but, you know, the, the Russian cybercrime have quite a few of them. They're very interesting things. And uh, you buy your exploit kit, might be $50 a month, might be $500 for a one-off thing. They have, they have tiered pricing for it. It's and support systems. I'm going to get yeah, into that. Yeah. Yeah. They have tiered pricing for it. And, uh, you know, once you buy it, it's full of these exploits, you know, things that can let you take over a computer. It links up to an email system. You send out your emails. And instead of just, you know, one coming back, it's got a little graph of who's clicked on it where and what type of computer they're on, what operating system they have, all this kind of stuff. And as you say, um, you can buy tech support for, for these exploit kits, which is just ridiculous. And that and that then links back to that, that whole attitude of us or people, everybody, thinking that, oh, it won't happen to me. But the... The, the frustration in some respects, whilst it's good to raise awareness that we're seeing in the news that these big organisations, um, you know, what's happening and that's getting reported is a positive thing because it is helping raise awareness. Um, what that neglects to highlight is how many small businesses are affected by it and charities are affected by it. And that's because obviously that doesn't make everyday news and equally people don't want to share it or they don't have a legal responsibility to necessarily share some of the things that are happening. So that probably contributes to that breeding of the mentality it won't happen to us and, and hence why it's probably more reactive than it is proactive still currently. I think that's changing slowly, but it but it is still that way at the moment. Yeah, I think I often think that people don't realise how valuable their information or even just their processing power is. So maybe we should spend a minute going through that, you know, why are these people doing it? I understand why they would want to get into a business. Businesses sit on top of things that can be monetized. Why are they attacking my grandmother? Well, you know, it's first of all financial gain, secondly identity theft, but definitely just the processing power of an individual computer can be tied into these big things called botnets, which release distributed denial of service attacks. Big, long phrase, but really it's just, it's a lot of people trying to get in the door at once and then nobody can get in the door. So, and also, you know, just processing power for mining bitcoins and things like that. Um, loads of computers all tied together. People don't understand that what they have is fundamentally valuable. Yeah, and that's, I think, what's quite interesting from that, even in just 30 seconds, that's more than one purpose for committing it. Whereas people do traditionally think, oh, it's just to get my banking information. Well, no, a bit further than that, it's the identity theft. A bit further than that, it's uh, so it can self-perpetuate. So the more accounts we breach, the more people we can reach, and so on and so on. And it's it's so far-reaching, the, the sort of impacts of cybercrime. And and again, I, the, the attitudes towards that are, are changing, but probably just too slowly. This makes me feel, I mean, it's interesting, I didn't know that you used to be a police officer. Yep, for my sins. Otherwise we wouldn't be friends. No, probably not, or even sat here now. Kept that quiet, <laughs> yeah, yeah. didn't you? Well, you have to, unfortunately. Did you do any cyber when you were in the police? No. Did you come across it? Not really, so it's quite interesting. So I, I mean, I joined the police in uh, 2014. So I was in 2014 to 2013. So just it was just shy of 10 years. The really interesting thing for me, given what we do now, is how little the police were involved in cybercrime at, at the stage that I was in the police. So 2004, practically unheard of, or certainly at the, uh, you know, the everyday policing level. And then towards the, the latter part of my time in the police, it was becoming more obvious, but it was still very, 
what I call sort of scam-based, computer-based mm-hmm. scams yeah. as opposed to cybercrime as such. So, I mean, obviously I'm a bit out of touch. It's been a few years since I was in the police, but it, it, it was alarming at the time, I suppose, how far behind the authorities are, generally speaking, I think. is probably not unfair to say. I might get some hate mail from that. But no, no, I, I, it's fair to say I know the Scottish Cyber Police quite well. And the impression that I got, and they'd never told me not to say it, um, and it's just my genuine impression, so you know, I could be wrong here, um, is you know, I've, I've visited their, what I call their secret volcano base, and I had to be blindfolded <laughs> and sworn to secrecy not to tell anybody where I was. Uh, and I said to them, you know, what, what are the problems that you've got? And seriously, guys, as, as close to friends as, as you can ever be with a policeman. No offence. <laughs> and, um, and they said, well, look, you know, here's a couple of our problems. One is that cybercrime as a division is, is really new, right, in, in policing terms. So, you know, the people that were the detectives in there, they were old, uh, you know, they used to be murder. Detective, there's, there's been a murder. Um, so those officers tended to be, you know, diagonal ranks, DCI, whatever, detective chief, uh, inspector, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, even detective constable. But yeah, yeah I, I yeah. get the point that they're probably long in the tooth compared to what they maybe needed to be yeah. at that point. So their technical skills, not, it's not their fault. Their, their investigative skills are brilliant yeah. at piecing things together, forming that chain of custody. It's not a chain of evidence. Chain of evidence is an American term. It's a chain of custody, isn't it? Well, it depends. I'd, I'd say evidence, actually, but yeah, oh, really? that's fine. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that's Fair fine. enough. Fair enough. Uh, willing to be wrong. <laughs> um, they are brilliant at that. They have a good, solid understanding of what the issues are because they've, they've done training. But they don't really have the technical chops to deal with everything that they're getting thrown at on yeah. a day-to-day basis. Uh, and let's be honest, they are two completely polar skill sets. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, you've got a very physical sort of investigation requiring empathy and the ability to talk to people and get that information out of people and, and really find those sort of, uh, you know, little nuggets that are going to lead to finding that extra evidence. And then on the other side, you've got a very analytical chain, mm, often and very technical. Yeah. yeah, and it's they're completely different skill sets. And I found that the technical people that they had... They're, um, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of civil servants. They're, they're not on the police pay grade. Yep. And just by the nature of the government, it doesn't pay particularly well. So they find it very hard to retain them. Once they get to a certain skill set, they're off and they're going into industry. Yeah, and you can well understand that because the... You know the disparity between the two pay levels is is quite shocking at times, and and then there's a skill shortage and a lack of well overall ability to deal with those cyber crimes, and and compounded by really terrible budgets. Terrible budgets. Also, when we talk about cyber crime and policing, you know people will think that it's fraud and and stuff like that, I and mean, it's horrible to say, but there is a darker side to the internet, um, and. You know, those kind of images that you would never want to see. Unfortunately, policemen a lot of the time have to go through those images. It turns out that that side of the internet is taking up a huge amount of their time and the amount of time they have for hacking attacks and, you know, trying to defend things like councils get attacked with ransomware all the time. You know, it's it's certainly limited. It's it's a real shame. We did in Scotland have some talk of um, cyber special officers. About 20 or 30 of us said, oh, you would totally do that and be like in the territorial army you would just go once a month and and help out the actual police but you know like all these good ideas i don't know what ever came of it 
It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I can't remember what the statistic was, but I read it recently where the it's something ridiculous, like over 90% now of recorded crimes are cyber-related. Because everyone's got a phone. Exactly. And that phone becomes evidence. Yeah, exactly. And so now we have got, like you mentioned there, we've got a very young, um, effectively, unit in the police, i.e. the cyber unit, but, then we, but that is now taking up the vast majority of crime. So mm -hmm. years and years and years of training, of dealing with this very traditional physical crime has just almost changed in, over the course of five or ten years. Yeah, and I wonder also how how often sort of general cybercrime is not reported. You know, I had a had an interesting event a couple of weeks ago where a friend of mine, she's got two young boys, one of them is seven, one of them is 12, and he'd, uh, one of the kids had watched a YouTube video and then clicked on a link to a site, and the site had given them the good old-fashioned pop-up of warning there is a virus in your system. And, um, and his mum on the phone to me said, I don't know why I did it, Paul. I, I knew better than to do it. But I said, did you click on the link? She went, no, I phoned them. I was like, what? And she said, yeah, this is, that's old school scamming. And she phoned them, they gave her a link to click on. And she said, the minute that happened, lots of boxes flew up and things seemed to have been copied. And she said, I don't know what to do. And I was really looking forward to a weekend without having to sit in front of a computer, but I couldn't, she was upset, I couldn't leave her. So we went and we looked at her, luckily it was a Mac, I went all the way through the Mac, found what I'd got in, scrubbed out that extra user that they'd added. Um, then it turned out that, um, and she doesn't mind me telling the story, she actually wants people to know about it. Then it turned out that um, her husband and the boys didn't have separate accounts. So the boys were sitting there playing on their dad's account and their dad was using that to store work information. And I said, well, this is, this is a problem here. Then I looked at the rest of their network and they hadn't really done anything. So we sat, I spent the whole day giving them all separate accounts, giving them all passwords, changing the password on the router. And she said, this is incredible because I've been to other mums in the school, told them what you did, and they said, oh, we didn't. We didn't know that was even possible. I was just about to say that. How many people, honestly, at the sort of the home computer have different accounts for different people? I dare say less than 10%. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'm thinking of, I might do not a stay safe online thing, but you yeah. know, how to protect your family and go to that school and give it on a parent-teacher evening. And if it seems like a good thing, then maybe that's something you and I should talk about. We should go and give it away to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that we're doing at the minute, we're, we're pulling together resources for schools um, to be able to effectively educate their school kids, a bit like what we mentioned earlier really, to, to actually get them to understand. So to get kids really to engage with cybersecurity at a younger age so we can educate them before they get into the workplace. So really what we're doing for, for organisations that we're working with, giving them the opportunity to sort of nominate schools and things like that. Obviously we've got schools who, who want to sort of take part with that already, but just trying to get get that message out there and I think again that would be that would go hand in hand with that and it's really important that that awareness is pushed out there because you know f from my perspective the government aren't maybe doing enough so it is it is about the private sector helping. Mm -hmm, definitely um, and as we've spoken about before I've got some cyber security stuff for schools as well so that's maybe we'll have you back and talk about the education stuff as well because uh, it's definitely somewhere that we can work together. So let's um, let's get round to the end then so obviously We've done quite well covering what we call the threat landscape. What's the solution? You obviously, your organisation has a very specific solution. So, um, you know, tell us about that and tell us about why this kind of staff training is important, what the benefits of it are. 
Sure. So I, I think first and foremost, it's a recognition that the IT measures, t- traditional security measures, only go so far. I think then there is a there's almost a duty really on on business owners and leaders of organisations to actually help their staff, help them. The positive thing about security awareness training is it is actually something that really gives back to people in their personal lives as well as work. So it's got a dual purpose. But in in summary, really, Paul, you know, we provide security awareness training. What that actually is in real life or in in sort of layman's terms is is online training, but not online training in the traditional sort of death bow PowerPoint sense. It's actually get, exactly it's getting people to engage in the scenarios that they're going to find themselves in a day to day life. So getting them to almost have that ability to interact in a bit of a sandbox environment. But crucially also, we recognise that it's not the most exciting topic to the layperson. <laughs> it isn't, is Why it? Why not? Exactly. How dare they? I can understand it. I mean, the best thing about uh, what we do, I think, is that we are we deliberately uh, put a flag in in the sand and say, look, we are not technical people, so we speak to people in a in a non technical manner, and we we let them understand it. We help them to really get to grips with things without all the jargon and the sort of scary stuff that puts us all off it in the first place. But then get them to to practice, give them the opportunity to learn uh, in that safe environment before they see it in real life and uh, and then help them make the right decisions. And as you say, full disclosure, I've looked at it, it's, it's not death by text, it's, you know, no, it's, it's a series be. of short modules, it's very engaging, it's very colourful, and as you say, there's a space to practice, it's not just assimilate information and and regurgitate the answer, there's actually inter- interactivity there. Yeah, and that is key, absolutely key with all of that. You know, if you, if you really want to engage a workforce, no matter what the topic, it's got to be engaging. We're in a different era now where people expect something more than what they've had previously, so it can't be death by PowerPoint. It's got to be engaging. It's got to be interactive. And, you know, one of the things that we really push and we're, we're continuing to develop is the whole gamification piece. So getting people to sort of enjoy taking part in it rather than it just being that feeling like training, the yes, dread of... Drawer, exactly, you know... To do. I've been there in my oh, yeah. in the legal I always firm. Say, I always say it's that you know first day you sit and you watch the health and safety video, and you learn how to pick up a box properly, and then the next day you just bend over and pick up a box. Correct. Yeah, and and that's what is really key to the way we do it. So we don't do, and it, and, it, and actually if a client asks us, we won't do one-off training. So if they want a half an hour one-off training session. Well, we tell them we're probably not the provider for that. I was going to ask you about that. How, how do you measure the effectiveness of it? I imagine this is where the simulated fishing side of it comes in. Yeah, absolutely. So we we deliberately, with the training modules, they deliberately give the people to sort of, uh, if they make mistakes, they get the opportunity to get them right within the training because... Best to get it wrong in a safe environment. Correct. And also, you know, I did the training at my former workplace on anti-money laundering and you have to get a certain percent right otherwise you've got to go do the whole thing again well that's going to really put people off so we, we we make it a restorative sort of learning process and then yeah the, the beauty of then complementing that training with with sort of fishing is that you can really start to see how that impacts so what we recommend is get that initial benchmarking test done before any training takes place see how people perform against the range of maybe easy emails maybe the difficult ones so the spear fishing as well as the dead easy stuff um, okay, so and fish them first get a baseline of definitely any got through yeah absolutely train them fish them again theoretically that figure goes down yeah and the, the trick is it should be ongoing so like i just mentioned where it shouldn't just be one-off because 
the next day they'll go back to the normal practices. How we deliver our training is, rather than taking up half an hour or an hour each year in a one-off one stint, we'll just deliver really bite-sized topics. So it'll just be five or 10 minutes on fishing. And then the next month you might get five or 10 minutes on password management and keep those topics rolling. So just basically dropping in every now and then with the, with the users to get them engaged and it keeps it at the forefront of the mind. And then aside from that, just running those maybe like quarterly simulated fishing exercises just to just to really test it and see where it's all going and making sure it's on the right track and also what's great about that you can easily identify those who are struggling and then that's when you can get the, them more support yes because if it's consistently the same person then they just need a bit more intensive absolutely training. yeah and, and that's when you know they might need a bit of face-to-face -face or a bit of hand holding around or it might be that actually you need to look at some additional it tech things to, to help sort of support that as well well, okay, um, I think that's pretty much our time, so thank you very much for being on. Pleasure. We will put a short description and a link to Ed's organisation in the show notes. And uh, thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you very much.